What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Michael Bloom, CEO of Bongo Pictures. How we doing, everybody? Happy holidays. Uh, happy New Year's, depending on when you listen to this. Oh, my God. Guys, we, we made it. 2020's coming to an end. Thank God. This, this wasn't an easy one. I don't know what else to say. This year sucked. Worst of my lifetime. We had a close call there. Did you hear about that election? I feel like I'm doing bad like open mic night. Did you hear about that election? Huh? That was crazy, right? Look, we had a lot of colleagues, a lot of friends in this business lose their jobs. I'm just going to come out and say it. A lot of friends, a lot of long tenured executives moving on. We wait to see where some of these people land. We've got departments shrinking. We've got consolidation across the board at different network conglomerate groups. It feels like there's less buying jobs than, than ever. And then you couple that with the fact that every year it only gets harder to sell a show. This was a year. So I just want to say, if you're listening, here we are. We're going to get through this. I think anybody that listens to this podcast should just feel thankful for the fact that we work in a business of fiction and nonfiction. We work in a business of storytelling. We don't work in a business of life or death. Some days I wake up completely terrified. And then other days I wake up completely grateful for the fact that I, I get paid to do the one thing in this world I've always wanted to do, which is work in entertainment. So I just want to say to all of you, the faithful peeps, I'm sorry I've been slow on the episodes, but this has been a, you know, like I said, you know what kind of year we've been dealing with. And uh, I do have a day job. And uh, I do have two kids, and one of whom is in a daily Zoom school. Um, so, yeah, it's been a little busy. I've been a little slow with the episodes, but I, I appreciate you all hanging in there. I have some great guests around the corner in 2021. Things are only looking up. Things are only looking up from this point forward. I'm going to put on my positive face now, put a positive button to this uh, intro. Uh, Michael Bloom. This was something we recorded uh, back in May, kind of in the early stages of the pandemic and the stay-at-home orders here in California. If you like classic MTV, classic 90s MTV, and want to hear the ins and outs about the beach houses and the spring breaks and those early shows, Bam Margera, the Jackass era, uh, this is the episode for you. Michael is a veteran of MTV, had a long tenure there as an in-house producer, Love talking about his experiences working with 50 Cent, working with Paris Hilton. You know, he co-created Nickelodeon's Rocket Power, an animated cartoon that like a lot of 20-somethings loved that show. When my assistant found out that he co-created Rocket Power, flipped out. Big reaction. I've now aged out of that demo, apparently. Also, we talked about how Michael went on to lead the start of AMC's unscripted division with uh, such hits as Comic Book Men, Talking Dead, The Pitch. Um, he would then go on to Fox Sports, where he ran programming for Speed and Fuel TV and was part of the launch of Fox Sports 1. And then eventually he'd make his way over to Turner and run development on unscripted over there. Uh, where he launched uh, Joker's Wild with Snoop Dogg and many other hits. I had a lot of success at Turner. And now he's running his own company, Bongo Pictures. Loved having him on the show. Great storyteller and a great all-around guy. This is my sit-down with Michael Bloom. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> 
said something funny the other day in an email when uh, we were just confirming this. You said, yeah, looking forward to your, you know, your sage point of view on things during these crazy times. And I'm like, sage, okay, the three of the four letters are uh, A-G-E, age. And I think you know me pretty well at this point. If you were, if you were next to me, I would have punched you in the arm. So... Did not, did not mean it in that way whatsoever. No, I know, I know, I know. But again, I, I of course, overthink it. I, I ca- of course, overthink it. But I thank you for that, uh, for that term. I you know where, where it actually comes from is I remember a time in your office at Turner, we were talking about having daughters. Yeah. And you, you brought up something like, okay, well, when the guy starts showing up at your house to start oh. calling on one of your daughters, Uncle Bloom is going to come over. And right? Or in his box. Yes, exactly. exactly. So I, that's where the sage part came in because you kind of already had set yourself up as this avuncular type figure for me if I need it. I did that to my sister when I was in college and she was going to the junior prom. I drove four hours home on a Friday afternoon to get there or maybe a yeah, Friday, something like that, to get there before her date picked her up. And I, I stripped my clothes off. I was in boxer shorts at the time and I ran and I got the door and, uh, that kid's face was just like, what the fuck? Wait, where'd you grow up? Morristown, New Jersey. Okay. And, and was TV ever a thing at that, uh, at that point in your adolescence? Yeah, it was, my best, it was my best friend. Really? So you were one of those? Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, D- Divorced parents or the parents together? No, absolutely divorced. Um, my mom used to take away the little uh, TV I had in my room as a uh, punishment, like as a grounding thing, and she would put it in the trunk of her car. But we had a broken TV that was kind of similar to it in the garage, and I would just steal her keys and switch those TVs and put the TV in my closet and, you know, still watch TV in my room. What was the show? Uh, or the, shows? These shows when I was a kid, little kid was... Um, the original uh, Star Trek, original series, blew my mind. MASH blew my mind. And I watched, I watched every movie I could back then. I mean, I was a big, as a little kid, Flintstones fan. Yeah. I thought, you know, that Saturday night CBS lineup. See, this is where the AGE comes in, of the uh, Sage. That Saturday night CBS lineup of All in the Family and the Jeffersons, Mary, Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart. And then, you know, practically one of the greatest shows of all time, The Carol Burnett Show. Oh, yeah. Just incredible. Incredible. But, I mean, how often did you as a family or you individually ever get into the city where you grew up in New Jersey? All the time. All the time. Went to Broadway shows, some movies. All the time. I I had relatives in the city, so we were... We were always there. So entertainment didn't feel like it was in this other universe. Like, as a kid, you knew it was just... It wasn't that far away for you. Nope. Except... No, because like I said, I'll lean into that. It was, you know, it was an escape. Loved going to movies on Saturdays with my friends in town. But then in high school, I went to an all boys Catholic high school. Only really? Jewish, only Jewish kid in the school for a couple of years. And every, every one of those kids, you know, there were very few people who went into the arts or talked about the arts in that school. Everybody turned into, you know, like lawyers, bankers, stuff, stuff like that. And ironically, there was a gentleman who is two years older than me, who's done very well for himself in the business and is a great friend. And I've known him since I was a freshman. And that's Carrie Antholis, who was at, at HBO for years and years and years. Sure. 
And then he oversaw like the limited series and, and things like, right, like Band of Brothers and stuff like that. That was under his watch, right? Yeah, he did Chernobyl. I mean, that was the last thing he did before he left. But yeah, he, he and I were during our, you know, four or five, you know, during our overlap at Del Barton, we're really like the only two people who ended up going into, uh, going into, into the arts. It, it, while the arts were important and, you know, we certainly had music classes and arts classes, there was no popular film classes. There were classic English classes and literature classes, but nothing that would point you in that direction. And, you know, frankly, in college, aside from a film appreciation course or two, it still wasn't apparent until I uh, started watching David Letterman. And wait, wait, so wait, where'd you go to school? Were you going to school in the city? No, I went to Franklin and Marshall College, small liberal arts school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. And um, yeah, man, stumbled upon David Letterman and was blown away by uh, Chris Elliott's guy who lived under the <laughs> stairs. And I just started imagining like, what kind of people make this? Yeah. And it's interesting because the people of the sage generation, we'll call it, because people I admire like Bill Simmons and Jimmy Kimmel, and pe- they always reference Letterman. And they always, when they talk about inflection points of what inspired them or made them want to get creative in any way, David Letterman is, is always the name that they bring up. I couldn't believe it, but years later, <clears throat> when I was working with Zach Galifianakis on Late World with Zach, mm. we, had a, we had a really quick, rough start on the show, just getting it on air in like four or five weeks. And they... I think Brillstein Gray asked Robert Morton to come on as a consultant and spend like two weeks. And I had never met Morty before. Mm. And all of a sudden, the person who was like Dave's partner in crime and producer during the great first stage of Letterman, I'm fucking working with him. Like, it was, it was insane. Was that the like short-lived show on VH1? Yeah, Late World with Zach. We did 44 right. shows and... We had no business being on, on VH1 at the time. And it, we, just, we just had so much freaking fun. So what was the first gig that got you in the door? So you're inspired by Letterman. You're now out of school. What starts the career path? Spent a couple of years in advertising, like account executive type training programs, wearing a suit and tie. And uh, found my way into MTV as a marketing executive. And about a year and a half in, you know, first of all, like the greatest... What era of MTV are we talking? Uh, early 90s. You know, okay. first, first year and a half, I like, couldn't believe how lucky I'd gone from working you know, in an advertising agency, wearing suit and tie to you know, jeans, button-down shirt, no socks, and sneakers. Well, for, also for a guy in his 20s, at that oh, point, there's, totally. no other, there's no other network you'd rather be at. It was, it was, it was crazy. And, you know, as a marketing person, they, it, a lot, there were a ton of sponsor segments. There, you know, I'd go on these sets and... I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to have that job. You know, I don't want to talk to people at advertising agencies. Hmm. And um, one day I was in a meeting for that, you know, the classic old MTV programming, you know, when they used to do live spring breaks from Daytona and stuff. And there was a, there was a hole in the programming schedule for what they called a king and the queen, king and queen of the beach type show. And um, got my mind racing, and I'm not going to lie, I was sitting at home that weekend doing bong hits and, <laughs> and goofing around with a couple buddies, and this idea came up, and uh, the next day, the next Monday or Tuesday, I went into Joel Stillerman's office, who was the executive producer of the channel, one of the executive producers of the channel at the time, and 
Ted Demi was in there and I pitched this idea for a show called Beauty Beauty and the Beach. And, uh, you know, it was just a a stupid king and the queen, king and queen of the beach type game show that Ed and Dre, you know, ended up from OMTV Raps, ended up hosting. And it literally had, it got a 3.2 rating. (laughs) And Wright said Fred was the musical guest. Joey Lawrence was for the audience for the audience that doesn't know the hit single for right said fred is what michael oh god uh i'm too sexy i'm too sexy yeah it was it was it was blasphemous the show was just outrageous and we pushed the envelope too much and remember doug herzog losing his mind watching watching rough cuts of the show down there because we had to turn those shows around in like two or three days to yeah. get them on air and believe me there was a lot of fallout from that show for about a week and then it airs and the following week, Joel offered me a job as like a full-time associate producer in production. And I moved over from marketing to, to producing and that was it. I always think of like the murderer's row and like the all-star team that existed through those early nineties years at MTV. I mean, you just referenced three names that right. were all in house at the time with Stillerman Demi, who both of them produced one of my favorite movies, Beautiful Girls, right? Oh, there you go. With Scott, with Scott, yeah. Rose, Scott Rosenberg, right? And, and, right. and then Doug Herzog was there at the time too. And somewhere along the way, Tony DeSanto is around Tony. there as like a PA uh, working for Polly Shore, right? Around that time he, as well. Tony was my first friend at MTV. I was a marketing executive. He was a PA chained to uh, a producer's desk across the hall from me. So you're, you're there, you've now pitched your first successful show. It's got a, it got highest rated spring break show of all time up until to, that point. Up until that point. Yeah. The, the average daily rating there was like a, like a 0.7 or a 0.8 and this got a, like a 3.2. <laughs> so do they say, Hey kid, what more ideas do you have? Is that what happens? Um, no, you just get, th- it was wonderful. It was a wonderful fertile ground. You get thrown into a you know, a bullpen full of other really creative people. And let's say that was um, March, obviously for spring break, a month and a half later, actually a bunch of other producers turned the job down and I begged for it. Um, They wanted to do, they wanted to expand Beach MTV and and, and build a studio at the beach somewhere. And um, I got the job to create the first MTV Beach House. Now, I, I remember MTV Beach House, but I don't remember, was it only spring break? Was it all through the summer? It was, what, what? It was, all, it was all summer. We would, we, would, we would rent a house. The first two years were in the Hamptons. The second two years, then year three and year four were in Malibu. We'd rent a house and run. It became the studio for a lot of the right. daily shows. Yeah. You know? and, uh, oh, my the gosh. Thing was the first two years, we were three hours east of you know, headquarters. So we had that distance and that create creative distance. (laughs) How do we say it? Yeah. Creative distance. I guess that's the word. Uh Um, And then year three and year four, we were in Malibu, which was, you know, 3000 miles away. And we got kicked out of our first beach house um, and had to move middle of the first summer because um, I'm going to say it, Tom Freston was, had a house in the same town and was getting, 
a, a raft of shit from the locals. And wait, hold on. So Tom Freston is like the big wig president of MTV at the time. Like he's the CEO of, of MTV networks at the time of MTV networks. And he has a house in the Hamptons. So he starts getting calls from like neighbors and people that know him. Yeah. 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 And they're like, I think we, what was the name of the band that did, uh, did who let the dogs out? Yeah, we did. We did the grind at the MTV beach house. <laughs> and, and literally like all the people in Quag went, went nuts, nuts. We had to move in a hundred degree heat. We had to find another house. We had to rebuild sets. I think we had to move in like three days over July 4th weekend. And then we just hit the ground running. It was like nothing. I, I can't remember if we made jokes or not. We might've, but you know, it, it just worked seamlessly and beach house one B as we call it was frankly was way more rad than beach house one one a who was your favorite vj of all time people get sick of hearing it but that you know that people who were lucky enough to grow up at mtv during that time before and after you know everybody a lot of people stay in touch you know i think i i i i had kennedy kennedy montgomery kennedy was just really so much fun and such trouble and you know, she's a big Fox News host these right. days. She, you know what? I'm going to give her credit. She was a, she was a conservative back then. Um, and she's a conservative today. She's the real, the real deal. But we all had so much. If you gave all, me 10 guesses, I would not have guessed Kennedy. Um, but, you know, there were so many people that came, that came through. Bill Bellamy was, we almost killed Bill Bellamy <laughs> once in Aspen at Mountain TV put him in a, an inflatable raft and let him go down a slalom slope. And, you know, he was probably going 30 or 40 miles an hour without a helmet on bouncing through the air and then totally garage sailed at the bottom. It, but I mean, just, just good fun. And everybody lived on top of each other and worked on top of each other. It was fun. Okay. So you were, you were a producer, you weren't an in-house network executive throughout that. No, time. no, no, there were no, there were no, there were, Doug, Doug Herzog was the in-house network executive. Everybody was producers. Oh. Everybody were producers at MTV. Producers, production management people. It's, it was all in-house productions back then. Okay, so I've heard people say this for forever about how back in the day it was all in-house MTV productions. But I guess I just, until this moment, I never realized that that meant that the actual construction of like, staffing at MTV Network was not similar to today where you have like nope. seven, eight development executives. It wasn't like that. So they- there, pro- they such thing. Got it. Joe Davola started, there was a moment in time in the, in the, in the mid nineties that they had a, an original programming group and there were development executives and Joe was head of it with Mike Dugan and Lauren Correo and Lisa Berger. And that was the first, in my mind, that I can remember that there were real executives, but they developed long-form programming. The rest of us were making VJ segments and specials and docs and right. a lot of stuff. So I'm going to go through some of the, the notable MTV-related projects that I saw you credited on, okay? <laughs> All, right. All right. And I want you to give me, I want you to give me like some, some tidbits here. Viva La Bam, 2004. Um, spent, uh, spent a full season on that. That was as wild as it gets. Um, you know, it, Bam was so charming and fun those, in those days. And so were his cohorts, especially 
you know, the sweetest guy on the face of the earth, the latest, the late Ryan Dunn. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, man, that was a, that was a wild, a wild, a wild year. I think that was, I think that was season two that I worked on or the second half of season one and the B and, and season two. And that's like, I mean, I was, I always love to play the game now of shows that wouldn't get made today or shows yeah. that couldn't sell today that may have been very successful, you know, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. And if a group of guys like uh, Jackass come in today, they're not making their way to a cable network. They're going to have a YouTube channel well before they ever try to pitch a TV show. And once you have success with a YouTube channel, why do you, why do you want to go make a TV show? Like we, we, we kind of like, we play this game in Hollywood where we, we meet these successful YouTubers and people start approaching them. And then once the YouTubers actually like see what they're going to get paid and what the production schedule is and how many notes they're going to get. Well, yeah, that's it. The layers of the layers of notes. Look for BAM and um, there were amazing network executives on that show. Mm-hmm. Jessica Samet, Lauren Dolgen, obviously they had a huge, uh, huge fan and supporter in, in Van Toffler for both Jackass and Bam. And, you know, at that time, there were, there, it was much easier to get production insurance. Standards and practices were a little bit easier or a lot bit easier, you know? I just always think like, is the rock and roll era of like young reality television dead? Because that younger generation, again, is just going to make their own stuff at YouTube and do what they want. Yeah. And not- Right. Yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how you squeeze. First of all, you know, the corny old term lightning in a bottle, that's what all of them were, mm-hmm. you know, and they had, they had, you know, Bam and, Bam and his buddies, you know, had been doing it for a while um, via their CKY videos. So, you know, they were already experienced at telling stories, you know, um, and getting into trouble and getting, trying to get out of trouble. So it was uh, Troy Miller and, Bruce Klassen and other producers on that show, you know, did a good job in that, in that early first season to, to establish what the story was and what the parameters of that, that world were. I loved that era. This is one of my favorite eras of MTV, like Viva La Bam, Robin Big, you oh. know, ar- around that time. Again, shows that wouldn't happen today, like Robin Big would not have a home right now. And you think of what an institution uh, Rob is now. Rob Deerdeck is, but that oh, he's, a, he's a he's in the industry. Yeah. Himself. But, but Rob a big now. To, I don't know what networks buys Tremaine, that now. Hats off to Jeff Tremaine for not only, you know, help you know creating and driving that that original story, but Rob too for for going for it and understanding yeah. that you have to put yourself out there. You know? Oh yeah, I mean in it was way in a wholesome way. Oh totally. I mean it was a straight buddy comedy. Yep. 2008, 50 Cent, The Money and the Power. I had no memory of this show, but oh. when I saw it on your, on your credit listing, I was like, I gotta, I gotta bring this up. This, that show in the My Antonio show at VH1, um, in Paris Hilton, my new best friend. Yep. They, you know, there were a bunch of other ones like that during that time, but who in their right mind now is gonna give, is gonna do hour long, talent-driven, insane formats that are parodies of parodies of themselves, of, of things that are going on. 50, you know, 50, 50 was amazing to work with. We were basically doing a street version of Apprentice. Right. And but, he, Michael, even down to the poster. It the was poster. Amazing. I looked at the, I saw the poster because I was looking up your credits. 
It's it's the Apprentice poster, but with Fifty Cent. Yeah, absolutely. I he worked so hard, and you know, we messed with people so bad, and but you know he he was really intuitive and really brought you know an innate intellectual street business level um, insight to all the creative that we put in front with him in front yeah. of him, and he was so into the show. It was based out of this empty warehouse in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, during, and we shot during the summer, and it was 8,000 degrees in there. He, he, brought in a mobile, he brought a mobile recording studio and parked it outside. So while we were doing other stuff, he would go outside and record, record music there because he didn't want to drive back to Connecticut where his house was. He was, that, he was that hardcore. What was the position the contestants were competing for? If I remember correctly, it was a, we were going to give them $100,000, stake them in a business, you know? Oh, so it was actually like a straight entrepreneurial. A- abs- absolutely. absolutely. It, wasn't like, it wasn't like come work for Diddy. It wasn't like that. No, 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 no. No, we, they, they won a big cash prize, you know, for them to invest. And uh, whether they invested or not, I don't know. If, I can't remember what happened with the kid who won. But, <laughs> you know, it was, a mix of, it was a mix of insane challenges and real business challenges. But, oh, my gosh. And then, and then another one I marked down, and you just referenced it, Paris Hilton, my new BFF, 2009. So is this because she's no longer friends with Nicole Richie and she needs a new BFF? Is that what this was? I, I it, was like a dating, it was like dating, a dating show for a friend? It, it was not a dating show. It was, uh, she was looking. She, yes. I, don't mean a literal, I don't mean a literal dating show. I mean like a matchmaking show, but you're finding a friend, not someone to yeah, it was, go out with. You know, I want to lean into what I said before. It was a parody of a parody of a parody of, you know, of a of a of a reality show. Like Paris, Paris, we cast a bunch of potential crazy characters that Paris could pal around with. And um, I stepped into that show after it had started to that it already started in production as the as the showrunner. Um, and then we ended up doing season two as well, but. My, my God, she was, she was great to work with. She went for it. And, you know, my favorite story about that is, you know, Paris has her, her day-to-day character voice, you know, that we all used to. I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I have this, I had an experience with Paris Hilton and I wanted to verify it with you. And, and, Go ahead. And, Go ahead. You know, the famous voice, I, my voice is too raspy right now, but, you know, you know, very high pitched. Kind of pixie kind of. Like, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, no surprise to anybody in the business, you know, she had a little, you know, earpiece in and we would feed her lines. And there was some line like she was, you know, to her court, to the, to the people on, on her court, the, the new best friend candidates, she was giving them, she was telling them a lesson, like heavy is the head that wears the crown. And she kept messing it up and she was like, heavy is the head that, and she was getting it wrong. And she kept, she was using the pixie voice and then she puts her finger on her ear, turns her head and she's like, What's the line? She has a low, normal voice. She has yes. a very normal voice. And yes, crazy. No, crazy. I, I had, Michael, I had the same experience. Like I, when I was working for Ben Silverman back in the day, we ended up having some like dinner thing and, and he invited some folks. And for whatever reason, Paris Hilton shows up to this dinner. Um, I forget, I forget the, the, the hotel on La Cienega, um, SLS. Yes. Right. So we're at like the, the private dining room at SLS. Joel McHale is there and some others are there. And I am, I'm in my mid twenties. I am 
fired up to meet Paris Hilton. I mean, Paris Hilton, I'm just like, I am jacked up. I can't wait. But I'm also coming in completely judging her before she even shows up, just from like everything you had read in tabloids. She shows up and then now it's, it's, you know, it's a closed room. You know what I mean? So she can just be herself. And she's speaking in like this normal, deep, normal voice, deeper, normal voice, not airhead at all. Nope. Like super grounded, super chill, like super, super mellow. And I was like, oh my God, she's been playing all of us. She's been been playing all of us. Like, I think, I think Marilyn Monroe must've been some sort of like idol of hers. Cause if you do enough reading and research on Marilyn Monroe, you realize that was a caricature as well that she was always portraying out in public. Paris always asked what the, you know, she, she would go deep on segments and want to know really what, what our goal was and what we needed to get out of it. And she, she went for it. She was really easy to work with. I, I loved working with her. All right, so two years later, you make the jump and you, you take a full-time network exec position. Yeah, it wasn't full-time. Um, at, at Fox Sports Media Group, it wasn't full-time? No, 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 no. It was, that was, that was. That there was, was something that. before that? So, so in the nine in the nineties, you mi- you missed Rocket Power, by the way, on Nickelodeon. Oh, I did miss Rocket Power. I'm sorry, I jumped right past that. So wait, wait. I'm glad you brought that up. Rocket Power is one of your earliest credits. Late late nineties. Okay. Um, uh, old buddy of mine, Andy McElverson, and I got hires hired as uh, writers and um, to develop a show uh, at Nickelodeon with Klasky Chupo about four little kids who um, an animated show. Yeah. Four kids who grew up at the beach. Basically, an older version of Rugrats set at the set at the beach, and um, Andy and I had both spent summers on the Jersey Shore as kids. So we we knew the we knew the world. We knew action sports. We knew surfing, skateboarding, all that stuff. And you know, we had three great years making making two seasons of uh, of Rocket Power on Nickelodeon. And you know, it was one of the first writing credits we had. We had a few others, but um, just a, a great experience. And it's fun to see the the show. It's great to see kids in their uh, in their in their mid twenties now and talk to them about Rocket Power and the fact that we grew up watching it every day. But had you ever had you like were you trying to pursue writing comedy writing? Yeah, we you know we sold a Andy and I had sold a TV script and a film script and we we wrote on um, Clifford the Big Red Dog. We wrote we did some straight to straight to video at the time um movies about uh these mcdonald characters that were sold in mcdonald's things i mean we did some crazy writing in the late 90s early 2000s um andy and i went different ways in the early 2000s he went to be a writer and field director on uh on the tonight show and i wanted to i wanted to be a showrunner so got it that's kind of how that whole um, Zach Galifianakis, Bam, kind of the mid two thousands happened. I God, just got so show running. So I botched the timeline. So you started MTV in on air and on air and off air marketing. You make your way into production. You're show running MTV Beach House. You're producing for MTV networks through the nineties, and then you get this late nineties. Anima- I go, me and Andy go freelance, and we start. Got it. You know, we start doing stuff together. And then early 2000s, mid, mid, actually, you know, show running shows like we were talking about, like yeah. 50 Cent and Paris and My Antonio and that stuff. And, um, you know, the hustling got to me around 2006, 2007. Okay. And um, Joel Stillerman, okay. we mentioned before, 
uh, had um, taken over AMC as the head of programming mm. element and I had reached out and said, we're starting an unscripted group and would you come in and consult? And I said, fuck yeah. And um, I had a few things in development at the time and I was able to carve a few things out of my, of my deal. And, you know, he wasn't sure if, if it was going to be a full-time job or not. And um, I was there for, for two years. I was still producing a few things on the side outside of there. Um, but, you know, they were playing with the whole idea of doing unscripted. And the first three things that we commissioned were uh, Talking Dead, which we handed to Michael Davies to develop and still running. Um, Comic Book Men was an internal idea from a, one of the marketing executives there. And um, we handed that to Charlie, Char Charlie Cor Corwin. Charlie Corwin. And um, Jay Peterson, I believe, was, was, one of the, was the original development executive on it and might have produced the pilot. Mm. And Charlie brought in Kevin Smith. Um, and then one of my favorite shows of all time. Wait, back, back up a second Hold on, before you get to your favorite show of all time. And I knew you had the AMC run. I thought it was after Fox Sports. No, it was, no, no, it was prior as a consultant. Comic Book Men was internally developed and yeah. Kevin Smith was kissed into that? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it, but it was Charlie's idea to go to Kevin because he knew Kevin had, a, Kevin had a comic book shop. The marketing executive pitched me and Joel the idea, why don't we do a, because Walking Dead is doing so well. Right. Right? And everybody loved the idea of Talking Dead because it would capture the audience afterwards. Morgan executive said, look, we have this, we have this audience, these eyeballs that are comic book fiends and, you know, pop culture fantasy fiends. Why don't, why don't we do a Pawn Stars type show right. for that audience? And all the Pawn stuff, all the, right, hardcore Pawn, American Pickers, are, it, we're in that era right now of reality at the time. And, you know, the idea was to leverage the audience of, of the walking dead, obviously. And, um, we had been such fans of, um, remind me of, uh, the name of the show Charlie did in the swamp, swamp people, swamp people. Yeah. You know, and, uh, he, uh, you know, we called him, brought him in, pitched him the idea. Literally, I think within a week came up with the Kevin idea and, uh, he and Jay made a, made a great pilot and it, that lasted for like seven, six, seven, eight years. That show. Oh yeah, no, it, it lasted way longer than I ever thought it would. Um, Wait, but what you, okay, so I cut you off. What was your favorite show of all time that you developed? Well, my favorite television show of all time is Mad Men. And I'm with you. I felt I have a very sick obsession with it. And um, have you I, bought any items? You know, they have that auction online that you can buy items from Mad Men. Yeah, I've I, seen it. And I will say that someone gave me a, a, uh, Sterling Cooper uh, Draper Price briefcase that was a season five or season six, season five or season six cast gift or crew gift. Oh. And I don't have it with me right now or else I would, I would show it to you. But I, it's great. One day Charlie Collier um, called us all into his office and he pitched us an idea based on one of the greatest moments in all of Mad Men. It's where Don Draper is pitching Kodak 
the idea behind the carousel. He theorized, you know, there's a great organic process in pitching advertisers concepts. Think of all the stress that goes into that. Think of all the, you know, drama that goes into that. Think of the authentic journey that people go on that leads up to one climactic moment. And um, I was in because the show was the greatest thing on the face of the earth. And, you know, Joel asked who should, who should make the show. <clears throat> and uh, two young gentlemen by the name of Eli Holtzman and Aaron Sedman had just killed it. I think season one of um, Undercover Boss. And I knew they had, here's a sage word, Jimmy, <laughs> a great Rolodex of CMOs and um, called them up and uh, they killed it. And I think it was two or three seasons of that, at least two seasons of The Pitch was the name of the show. Yeah, The Pitch. And, um, it, it got some great critical acclaim. It got a second season, if I remember correctly. Um, I want to say it maybe, did it get an Emmy nom? Um, I felt like it got some- it a critic, Critics' Choice Award, for sure. Yeah, it got some real recognition. Then there was one last crazy show from that original batch. Um, the left-right guys, Banks Tarver and uh, Ken, Kenny Druckerman. One morning, I was in, I was, I was in LA working on a, I was, work, I was in LA, I wasn't in New York. I couldn't be in the pitch meeting. It was, it was well before the days of Zoom. And they sent me a link because they were going in to pitch that afternoon and they wanted me to see the link. And it was, it was Tiger King before Tiger King. This was, this was comedy and it was brilliant and it was real. It was about a small, it, was, it ended up being small town security. Oh, and, yes. And the name of the company was JJ Security. And you just couldn't believe that it was real, but it was. And the story behind that is Matt Saul, a former WME agent. Yeah, sure. Their agent, their agent, I swear to God, this is true was sitting in Temple, wherever he lived in, wherever his parents were in Georgia, on, on like high holidays or something. And he's sitting next to these, these crazy people and he's listening to them to talk about their security business. And he gave them their, his business card. He got their business card and you know he smartly handed off their business card and told um, Banks and Ken about it. And fuck, man, I honestly think it's one of the greatest sizzles of all time. They sent me that sizzle that morning. I immediately like got on the phone with Joel and just screamed, this is the best thing I've ever seen. He saw it in the afternoon when they came in. And Joel, I just remember Joel writing a very passionate email about why it needed to be greenlit and to Charlie. And, you know, that, that was crazy. That was small town security, right? Small town security. All right. So let me, let me ask you about this then. When, when did it become like this weird reality TV network rule that networks self-mandated on themselves that audiences don't like produced, quote, uh, scripted hybrid comedy reality? Like it has to be real. And if it's not real, our audience is going to reject it. Like I've never bought into that. I've always thought if it's done well and it's funny, the audience will like it. And they don't care if it's produced or fake. If it's done bad, it's bad. Right. Yeah. But, but a lot of people, most times just, they say no to the entire genre. And I've never understood why anybody would close himself off to the entire genre like that. I a thousand percent, I a thousand percent agree. A good producer can find the line and keep it, keep things on the line 
and not go over and make things seem super, super fake. There just has to be an organic arc to things and there has to be a real mission or it's going to come off, come off fake. There has to be some journey that these, yeah. these characters have in real life that you're documenting, you know, yeah. or else it is scripted. It right. is scripted. There yeah, has yeah. to be a delta. There has to be an, a, a natural delta there that you are, you're examining. All right, so what made you go to Fox Sports Media Group in 2011? Because uh, AMC hadn't decided full-time that they uh, wanted to really go for it. And it sounded like the coolest job ever. All of a sudden, I get to go work, you know, do original programming for Fuel TV and Speed. And yes. Speed had incredible ratings at the time. And, but Monday through Thursday in their prime time, there were two different networks there. It was like Monday through Thursday in prime time had low ratings, but all their live sports events were highly rated. And, you know, fuel had a very profitable little opportunity and they, you know, they were about to get the UFC. So they knew they would have new eyeballs. And um, I got in there. That's when I met you, you brought in that. Yes. It was a, it was a water, water towing show, I think. A was water water towing show from uh, Miami. Great characters, perfect for speed. But like four or five months in, after we kind of cleaned up the slate that was there and started buying new stuff, they dropped a bomb internally on everybody and saying, quietly said, guess what? A year and a half from now or a year from now, we're going to turn both these channels into Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for a second, I was freaked out because I had made some new, bought some stuff, we were developing it. But then I realized that, you know, I looked around, talked to my friends. None of my other friends had been involved in a channel launch, let alone two channel launches. And, you know, what a crazy year and a couple months that was, you know, launching two channels in, I think it was 110 million homes. Got to make long form documentaries like Being Liverpool and do crazy live sports talk shows. And it was, it was an amazing experience being part of that, part of that crew. And it's something that just doesn't happen. I mean, I've been fondly watching, you know, our friends at Quibi going, going through that and watching, you know, talking to some of my friends over there. And it's, it's, and now, and now with HBO Max about to launch, you know, and what, Jen O'Connell and all, and Julie St. Alban and Rebecca and what, what they're doing, you know, it's, a, it's something that just does not, it's hard to describe what it's like launching something and putting together not just a slate of programming, but a whole brand voice and trying to live up to that and right. getting everybody on the same page. It's, it was an interesting time. So how long, was, how many years were you there? I was there three and a half years. And then and, it was IMG? Yeah, not going to lie. I got, I could not. I got sick of sports program. Well, that was my whole thing. Look, I'm a huge sports guy. And I thought I wanted to be a sports reporter, you know, all through college. And then I, one day I realized when I had a phone call coming from a local news director in Oklahoma, I realized, oh my God, I don't really want to do this because I'm going to learn to hate sports. Well, uh, I, I couldn't, I, you could just not turn it off. My, you know, we watched, we watched games on the weekends, you know, and yeah. um, it wasn't fun anymore. And I missed I missed entertainment. I missed the, the Viva La Band, the Rocket Power, the 50 Cent, the... Because that's the, such a diverse, like, all. that's such a diverse, like, group of credits you've had to that point, having done scripted, animation, show running, and, and you've now had a taste of the network side with AMC, and you've done yep. some more, like, higher profile type stuff, like, 
you know, the pitch and whatnot. Yeah. That's that's why I always worry, Michael, about like, if I ever go to the network side, I think I'll go crazy because I don't, I don't know if I could ever just, you know, focus on just like a narrow lane of this is what we can do and this is what we can't do. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what brand's all about, man. You got to buy into the brand. And I know, I know you like doing a lot of different stuff. Look at all the different networks that you're, that you're on. Um, I missed flat out. I missed entertainment. I missed doing crazy things. And I wanted sports. I love sports. It was great being on the inside, but uh, um, I missed, I missed Hollywood. So IMG was next, right? Yeah. And that's been a year and a half, um, year and a half in the original content group there, which morphed into Endeavor content. No, the IMG stint was great because I got to work with, you know, a lot of close friends at, at WME and yeah. Um, but look, you don't take stuff out that you don't believe in to sell, you know, right, right. and the transactional nature of, of that business and God bless them. Um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't just sell for selling sake. And I did, I did have, you know, a couple really good opportunities there, like, you know, getting to be really good friends with Jad Dye and, and putting together the E-League and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, being one of the architects of that and getting Turner and uh, IMG to pony up and create that, create that business. That was as cool as, you know, cool walk, as- me th- walk me through that. Cause I don't know enough about, about the E-League. So um, the, the league day, existed, but was day, it about. One day Mark, Mark Shapiro calls and said, I was just talking to, I was just talking to Kevin Riley. You gotta, you gotta go in there and pitch him some esports stuff. He's really interested in esports, So you know, best buddy, David Allenberg's head of unscripted there at the time. I call him up and, you know, he's like, yeah, we're, you know, it's something that Kevin's, Kevin's interested in. He wants to take a swing. So Jad Daya had had the same call with David or had heard from Shapiro as well. And Shapiro was my boss at the time. And, you know, just marshaled the forces of WME and IMG at the time and put together this like crazy 20 page deck. It was more of a esports content initiative. There were 10 different show ideas. There were live events. There was a league that we pitched and we took it to Kevin, um, pitched it to Kevin one day. And then this was about a month later and Kevin set us up for like three weeks later with um, David Levy, you know, in New York. And uh, we did a, we went to New York and pitched David and, his his team from Turner Sports, um, and you know a month later, a month later the BA you know the IMG and Turner are uh, negotiating a joint venture, and we launched an esports league, and right. um, that kind of reintroduced what? me to my buddy. Go ahead. With both partners having equity in that, so now Turner yeah, they were was fifty a- fifty partners at the time in creating this league from the ground up. And then yep. they would have all the programming that stemmed out of that league down the line, Bleacher Report, whatever Turner thought the right platform would be down the line. Exactly. I mean, they saw it, they had saw it, they saw it being, you know, working on linear on Friday nights on, on TBS. And uh, <clears throat> I think a part of our pitch was let's create the Monday night football on Friday nights of esports, you know, and, and it, it lived on TBS. And how much did you know? How much did you know about gaming at that point? Uh, Zero. <laughs> I mean, I knew, I, you know, we'd all seen, I, I remember it had been brought up. It's funny you said that. I remember someone brought it up in a meeting 
um, when we were when we were putting together the programming slate for Fox Sports One, and you know some of the more conservative classic sports executives at the table, like no fucking way. There's yeah. no way. And and then the numbers started popping, and you see, you know, all the live event stuff that's happening in Europe and Asia, and you see that you know the fact that there's like a million and a half concurrent viewers on a on a on a on a live you know YouTube webcast of a right uh, you know Ima- imagine if Fox Sports had bought Twitch or created their own Twitch at that point right you know right, right, yeah right. yeah but you know what a wild year that was at AMG and working with Turner Turner Sports to launch um, E League and the irony of the situation is you know about three quarters of the way through that year David Allenberg called and said hey man. I'm moving on and I want to put you up for the job. And we were about eight weeks away from launching E-League at that time. And I said, I'm in. And he said, okay, stand by. I'll wait, you know, I'll let you know when to email Kevin. And I knew Kevin from when I was at Fox Sports and he was running FBC. And it was, it was that conversation. David Allenberg had this conversation that, that was in Swingers. Remember when? John of course, Fett it's my favorite Eric movie. What's John the growth character is like, how many days do I wait before I Yeah, the three-day rule? Her? Yeah. So, so <laughs> we, we settled on five days. I would wait five days because he had just told Kevin he was leaving. And I, that was on a Wednesday, and I emailed Kevin on a Monday, and uh, he emailed me right back. And it was like the easiest transition ever. Um, and the day the announcement came out was the day that was our first E-League taping in, uh, in – um, in Atlanta. So I was at the Turner offices in Atlanta when, when that announcement hit deadline. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you had a great run. I didn't tell anybody at Turner sports. So it was so much fun, like sticking my iPhone in their face and saying, hello, colleague. (laughs) And you had a, you had a fun run there, man. I mean, you did drop the mic with James Corden. You did Snoop's Joker's wild, the misery index, which has been successful and got a subsequent season order. 30 episodes now. Yeah, and Shack Shack Life, which is coming out, that hasn't aired yet, right? No, no, Shack Life just the finale is tonight, and it's tonight? done very well. Okay, on TNT. the first so, yeah, the first reality show in a very long time that that is done well on TNT. Yeah, because TNT previously to that under David's administration, it was Cold Justice was like the really the one that kind of started. Oh yeah, yeah, but they like, did some other stuff too that did well back in the day with The Rock. But that was, um, we we produced that at Electus. Yeah, we did, we did. We did the hero. Yeah, the few things that we put on TNT in the in since then um, didn't didn't gain traction. Can I tell you? Can I just share with the audience my one exchange almost working with you on Go a ahead. show on a show? So I reach out to you. Right, we haven't talked did about I, this. Did I make it happen? Did I make it happen? Of course you did. We, right. we did but we didn't actually get the work on it together because nope. you 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 had left. Uh, so I I reach out to you and I'm like, two hey, two years in a row. What's that? What do you mean two years in a row? You reached out to me the year before, and we oh yes, going yes, and then you were you were persist, persistent, Jimmy Fox. Yes, and- yes. Well, that's why I want to say that that's I have the email exchange that I still love as a result of this. So I go to you, and I'm like, hey, and like an email, like the laziest pitching in the world, by the way. I I, I think I may have called you, but I think I emailed you, and I'm like, hey, how come you, you guys had are your agent? You had your agent pitch me. Not first. No, no, no. I, I definitely reached out to you first. Okay. Laura okay. York didn't circle back with you or David Gross didn't circle until later. Um, no, I, I think I sent you an email. I was like, hey, why hasn't TNT, TBS done an NBA roast? Um, you know, you have, you, have, you have the NBA contract. You guys do all the NBA programming. Why don't we do an NBA roast, right? 
it's, it's a league built on trash talk. And you're like, this is really cool. Let me talk to Turner Sports about it. And then like, I didn't hear from you forever, right? Right. So, so months go by and I pest you with an email every once in a while. You're like, hey, I'm talking to Craig Berry who runs Turner Sports. Just like, give me a minute. And nothing happens. And this goes by, like a year goes by. And I'm not letting this idea go because I think it's like, it's a natural. So at some point, like CA probably started bugging you as well. And I think Laura York in New York, who works across all like kind of the crossover sports clients out there, bugged you. And you're like, yes, I remember Jimmy talking about it. Craig Berry was open to it, but like, it's really hard to get them to like get going on stuff. Like it's, it's hard. You know, they, 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 they do sports. They don't do like crossover stuff so much. So this goes on for a while. And this is one of those, and I think this is a good lesson for anybody listening, like in our business that for those that do listen, this is one of those moments where like, I kind of did something kind of begged for forgiveness later. I called Charles Barkley's manager who I know. Mark, yeah. Mark Perman, who, okay. I, who I knew because we had developed something years earlier. And I said, hey, I know you know uh, Michael Bloom over there. I know you obviously are in business with Turner, with Inside the NBA. Here's this idea I've been wanting to do for a long time. And he's like, oh yeah, like Charles, yeah, Charles being involved in an NBA roast, like on TNT, that'd be great. So I send you another email <laughs> out of the blue. And I say, hey, I talked to Mark Perman. Uh, Charles Barkley's manager, Charles would love to like, be involved in this. And all you do is you write me back an email and you just go, dude. And that's it. That's all you wrote me back. All you wrote back was, dude. And I, and I read that like, oh yeah, he's upset. He's upset that I like, now. Upset. It's like, I just loved, I just loved the way you did it. You have to be, you have to be relentless. And like, there was no way it was going to happen that first year, but yeah. your timing was perfect. And, um, you know, but, but luckily up on the way out, but luckily you did. Cause then you got us on the phone, Craig Berry and Craig Berry was like, who runs Turner sports. He's like, we have our 30 year anniversary of the NBA on TNT coming up. And it would probably be the best way for us to celebrate the anniversary of let's do this roast, but let's roast the inside the NBA panel. It was a great idea. Kenny Shaq, um, Charles Ooh. and Ernie. And let's do it at the all-star break. So for me as a sports fan who loves the all-star weekend. Like I watch every event. I, I consume myself with it that whole weekend. It's usually around Valentine's day to be told we're going to produce a roast, the first ever NBA roast. And we're going to do it in Chicago for this past uh, all-star weekend. It was, it was a blast, man. And you, you made it happen. You, you, you set the whole thing up. Well, I was happy for you. I was happy for everybody. And it's just, look, there are a ton of good ideas out there and it's timing is so important and don't let go of your ideas and just, know that there's a time to strike, you know? So speaking of timing, before I let you go, yep. so, so you leave October, 2019. Oh yeah. You start Bongo. Yep. You, you now have a first look with Warner Media Group. Is that yep. how this was? Okay. So yep. Warner Media Group is what? It's Cartoon Network. It's no, no, TNT. It's, it's what is it? My first look, my production deals with TNT, TBS, True, and HBO Max. Okay. So it's only those four. Yeah, and a bunch of the shows that I got, a bunch of the shows that I got into the pipeline in the summer and fall, I stayed on as I left, mm -hmm. and um, it's been a it's been a wild experience. Um, really happy uh, to be working with Corey. We go back a little ways, and she's been amazingly supportive. Um, I'm doing a, I have two projects in development with uh, with Jen O'Connell. At HBO Max, yeah, and um, just believe it or not, got a COVID green light 
straight to series um, about a nice. week and a half ago for an Impractical Jokers at home show. Nice. Um, which is oh genius, insane. Uh, it's it's uh, went. I'm sure the announcement will come out next week, so that's fine. But you know, Impractical Jokers dinner party. They're gonna. They've these guys have been friends for over 30 years, and they've never spent this much time apart. So they're gonna not force themselves once a week they're gonna have dinner with each other virtually and um is this for tbs or true it's for it's for true okay and, uh what a wild time to put a show together i will just tell you that well why get it on air in three weeks well i'm yeah i mean like again let's go back to the family thing how many kids do you still have in the home uh two kids a 20 year old and a and a 17 year old boy and girl <laughs> okay so how is it how has how has been telling those people that have their own social circles and their own like activities going on to stay home? How's that been going over for eight weeks, Dad? Um, they're in charge. <laughs> they are. You'll see. Let's talk about your daughter for a second. They're the two biggest critics I have in my life. They're they're worse than network executives. They're not. There. There's no filter there. There's yeah. no filter. No. So. So, so, so you're basically living by their rules right now under quarantine. Stay away from them as much as possible, except for dinner time. Why, uh, why bongo? Uh, it was an old nickname a very long time ago. Yeah, because you, you referenced earlier the, the bong days. Uh, no, no, nothing to do with that. Oh, enough. okay. I, I didn't know where to go with that because you were big, you're big coin. We can, we can talk offline about the... Uh, the bongo of it all, but it's an old, it's an old name. And, um, that was your nickname. Maybe. Okay. Okay. I mean, you named it your company. You're going to get that question all the time. Why, why would you name your company something you can't right. disclose? This you is the last quick story. And then we're going to end this. Yes. I, in college, I lied and got a job as a DJ at a beach club on Long Beach Island, New Jersey. Okay. I had never DJed before in my life. It, there was an, Oh, help wanted ad. And I lied and said that I could DJ and they needed a name to put on the on the outside. So DJ Mike Bongo. Boom. Done. Goodbye. We're done. That was it. All right, man. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate you. Jimmy, thank you so much. <laughs>